This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Much to discuss today. Phone lines open, 888-900-3393. Leaks, leaks, and more leaks. That's what I get from this morning's data dump in the news cycle. You got NBC News, NBC News, like MSNBC, of course. Uh, Intelligence officials say Putin personally involved in election hack. That is quite an escalation, isn't it? Last week it was Russia did it to help Donald Trump, and now it's Vladimir Putin was personally involved in the whole thing. Um, You can say that this is the result of excellent detective work and that clearly this just came about because the people who were doing the investigating in the IC who were looking at this, remember, as intelligence, not really as evidence per se, and they're going to bring a prosecution against Vladimir Putin, that they all of a sudden have really uh, relevant information that they've stumbled upon, that now we see that they're able to put together not just the motive, but, if you will, the mastermind of this whole thing. And unsurprisingly, they are now saying through a leak that it's Vladimir Putin. Now, this will be reported on across the media as gospel. Nobody's going to stop and say, hold on a second, this is one voice from inside the intelligence community Is this an Obama appointee, as in like the head of the CIA? Who's actually saying this? Is it a partisan political figure who happens to work inside the intelligence community in some capacity? Or are we to take this as the sort of across-the-board truth of the situation? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly how the media is going to play this, uh, except that they're going to say, that this is now the the new reality, right? I mean, are, are they going to sort of dig a little deeper and get some additional sourcing? Maybe. That's a possibility. But in the meantime, I can see a very realistic, I can see a very real, realistic scenario uh, in which we now spend the next week debating the depth of Putin's involvement in this without ever stopping to think, hold on a second, is Vladimir Putin, he really oversaw this operation? Keep in mind that this would mean, as we've gone over this week, and I know I've led off with this, for a few days this week, but I do think it's the most important news story currently out there under discussion because it's it's really just all about the incoming Trump administration, and it's about the Democrats uh, having a complete fit because they know that they have lost control of, or they will soon lose control of the United States government. They've had it for eight years, and they've gotten really used to it, and they really like it, and they have no interest whatsoever in allowing power to transition. 
So that's where we are here. Um, that is the reality of the situation. And the leaks that are coming out, which, by the way, would generally be considered, I would assume, classified information, certainly based on classified sources. You know, this is playing dirty. But you'll notice that there weren't a lot of leaks from inside the intelligence community while Obama was in office that were specifically meant to damage the administration. There were plenty when Bush was in office. And now Trump is going to be taking the helm as commander in chief. And before he even is commander in chief, there are leaks specifically meant to undermine his presidency, to undermine him um, and to create, as I've said, an across the board excuse, not just for opposing Donald Trump or for criticizing him or viewing him as a less than fantastic president, but for treating him with complete and utter disdain. That's the real goal here. The goal is not to have uh, a Trump administration that is kept in check. The goal is not to speak truth to power. I mean, they want to kneecap this administration. They want to just take it out of action as much as possible. Well, I'll get into some of the, the legal preparations they're making for that as well. They're essentially going to be gathering up a form of, of lawfare and filing. You know, they, they see no difference between, say, the Obama administration, which I think lost in federal court 14 times. I think that was the number. And just piling lawsuit after lawsuit or frivolous lawsuit after frivolous lawsuit up against the Trump administration and creating a lot of press around it and, and trying to create this perception that Trump is you know, a lawless tyrant and all this other stuff. Of course, Putin now, because he's going to be treated as the man behind this whole hack, uh, Putin is getting a lot of attention from across the sort of commentariat. Uh, they're even talking about a sort of what I would call a Russo mercantilism, because what is the real end goal of a lot of Putin's meddling and a lot of what's going on with the Russian state? This is what the Washington Post writes. Putin has consistently spoken about the need for modern Russia to have friends. Unlike during the Cold War, Russia is not trying to transform the world order with its own ideology. Russia does not need world revolution. It needs to parlay its status as a master of disruption into a magnet for business partners, end quote. So it is sort of like a, a neo-Russo mercantilism. It's just chasing profits at, at any end. It's, it's an, interesting, uh, an interesting ethos or sort of mission statement for an enormous state that, as we've talked about, still does have many millions of, I'm sorry, many uh, thousands of nuclear weapons and millions and millions of nuclear weapons. That would be even scarier. At, at that point, Uncle Yuri really would be selling him off the back of a truck. Let's hope that already hasn't happened. So Putin has been pushing for business interests around the world. And I know this also then raises some hackles with people because of the Rex Tillerson appointment. But yet again, I don't think it's fair to judge a person based on the job they used to have um, and say that they're going to approach another entirely different job that's supposed to serve the American people as though they're doing the same thing they used to do, right? I mean, it's like saying, well, if you're a if you're a public defender, then can you go and become a federal prosecutor? I mean, of course, the answer is yes. Right. I mean, this you would never say that. And I know this is that's within the scope of the same job. And, uh, but, you know, you're going on one side, and you're going on the other side. People wouldn't ha wouldn't find that strange. Uh, I also think there's a case to be made here for why very wealthy uh, business leaders are an interesting choice to be 
the most senior government officials that we have. Um, the Clintons certainly showed us that some people will use public office to enrich themselves. For some people, public office is really just an excuse to make a lot of money and to become very powerful. Um, I, I think uh, going forward, we recognize that that's a bad recipe. That's problematic. We don't really want people running for office who overwhelmingly view the office as a stepping stone to uh, wealth and power. People who are already powerful and wealthy certainly can overstep, and you can argue that the richer somebody is, the more they, you know, the richer they are, the greedier they become, or, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But Rex Tillerson's worth $300 million of Exxon stock. Uh, we're really going to assume that he would sell out the interests of his country because he was friendly with Putin when he had to do business deals as part of a private corporation. Um, I, I don't know why that's sort of disqualifying. It is for a lot of people, it seems, uh, or people view it that way. I think we'll find out a lot more in the confirmation hearings, and we'll see. But everyone wants to jump to conclusions, and I shouldn't say everybody, but the media wants to jump to conclusions about all of this right away. Um, I, I should know that, of course, now there is some uh, disinfor disinformatia uh, that's out there about where the WikiLeaks hack came from. Uh, there's a Daily Mail story. I want to make sure I get this right with a guy that has a sketchy, let's just say a sketchy uh, background who's come out and said that the WikiLeaks emails were really a sort of a, you know, and, and I'm talking about the DNC and Podesta hacks, um, that they were the result of sort of cloak, old school cloak and dagger stuff where you've got uh, somebody meeting with somebody in a park or, or in a wooded area, I think, near American University in D.C. So uh, I don't buy that, by the way. But, of course, this does complicate the narrative for the left that, or, and, and for the Democrats and really for a lot of people in this country that this was all the result of, a, of hacking and phishing, uh, a phishing scam that got access to all these emails. And they're putting that out there now, too. I, I don't buy that. I, I do think that they got it through the hacking and this story about somebody, he's sort of connected to WikiLeaks, saying that they got it from an insider. What they're trying to do is at least establish some narrative that the information about the DNC and Podesta's emails were not illegally obtained, because that's the big sticking point, right? Democrats love leaks. Somebody who has access to information and puts it out there, the media loves that. They, in fact, even love it when we're talking about U.S. government information that's sensitive and that could be very damaging when it's out there in the public sphere, damaging to American interests. I don't just mean, I don't just mean damaging to you know, certain government officials and, and whatnot. Um, in this case, there's at least going to be some, uh, uh, some skepticism applied by those who are working overtime to believe this WikiLeaks guy. But I, I am personally uh, still of the mindset that, yeah, Russia did this. Hacking happens all the time. Oh, just in case we, you know, if, if we want to put this into some kind of perspective here, by the way, Yahoo has said, uh, this just came out today, I believe, uh, or was it yesterday? No, it was yesterday. Yahoo told everybody that in September, there were 500 million user accounts that were hacked, uh, September of this year, and they were hacked in 2014. Uh, in fact, a different hacking attack in 2013 compromised more than 1 billion accounts. 
So while we're all supposed to be uh, completely freaked out and at DEFCON 1 and, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? I can't believe they got into the DNC's emails, and I can't believe they were able to get access to John Podesta's personal account. A billion accounts hacked? What are the chances? I mean, there's only 6 billion or maybe 7 billion now people on the planet. Think of all the access that those hackers may have had. And Yahoo thinks, by the way, that that was, uh, that was a state-sponsored attack of some kind. So we're, we're already approaching a reality, I think, where those who are paying attention and being honest realize we're approaching a reality where you have to assume that your email system could be compromised. And countless hundreds of millions of people have already had their email accounts Compromise a billion people have had it just at Yahoo alone. And, but, and that hack, uh, I should note, included passwords, date of birth, phone numbers, names, and everything. Everything. How this hasn't, maybe it has had a bit. I don't follow stock prices and stuff, but I would assume that that's, this is bad, bad news for Yahoo, which actually just got acquired, I think, by Verizon uh, for a whole lot of money. Um, Yahoo still has more than a billion active users. That is astonishing to me. I have not used Yahoo. I didn't. Even, it's been years. I have not used Yahoo in years. Um, but anyway, we're back to the back to the leaks for a second. Uh, there, there's no official word that will come out on this um, in terms of a Capitol Hill briefing. Uh, Congress is upset about that. Clearly, this is political. Uh, clearly, there are senior figures in the IC. And I mean, look, there's a fig- there's a photo of Brennan on FoxNews.com right now, CIA director. So, I mean, I'm not the only one who's coming to a pretty obvious conclusion there. Uh, there are people that want a little payback against the, tr- against the Trump team, against the Trump administration. And if that means that they're going to take this whole Putin hacked Hillary because he doesn't like her. I mean, they're saying it's personal, by the way. This is the story that NBC News reported on a high-level intelligence source said the campaign began began as a vendetta against Hillary Clinton. The goal grew into an effort to expose corruption in U.S. politics and to undermine America's international credibility, according to NBC. So from the beginning, it was to undermine Hillary. Well, that seems strange to me. Why they go into the why they hack RNC accounts too, or did they? We can't even seem to get confirmation on that. Look, ultimately. The American people are allowed to make their decisions, their electoral decisions, based on whatever information they want. And whatever's out there is out there. And this is the world we live in now. And even if Democrats are able to prove, or if the IC comes out, forget about the Democrat side of it for a second, the IC comes out and says that, yeah, Putin was behind this, he ordered it, it's all Putin, booty poot Putin, he's the guy, and he hates Hillary, and that's why he did this, and we think it had an appreciable impact on the election— well, tough. It doesn't change anything. You can't give a, as I said, a hacker's veto to somebody. You can't say that, well, because a foreign government hacked into some someone's account during an election or put out information, let's just say, during an election and it changed it. It, it doesn't, it's not the fault of the campaign that won. So you're not going to have a redo as much as I know there are some Democrats who really secretly and even not so secretly want that to happen. Won't change anything. So what is this? And, and by the way, the security aspects of this are largely irrelevant, meaning there's not going to be anything that comes out of this from a security end that people um, people will be able to do to stop this in the future. So 
We shall see, my friends. 888-900-3393. Team Buck, I'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Well, of course, there's the uh, argument about Russia and the hacks and whether it impacted the election. You could get into that, or you could just rely on the left's secret weapon, celebrities making political pronouncements. Play it. Republican members of the Electoral College, this message is for you. As you know, our founding fathers built the Electoral College to safeguard the American people from the dangers of a demagogue and to ensure that the presidency only goes to someone who is, to an eminent degree, endowed with the requisite qualifications. An eminent degree. Someone who is highly qualified for the job. The Electoral College was was created specifically to prevent an unfit candidate from becoming president. There are 538 members of the Electoral College. You and just 36 other conscientious Republican electors can make a difference by voting your conscience on December 19th and thereby shaping the future of our nation. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. As you know, the Constitution gives electors the right to vote for any eligible person. Any eligible person, no matter which party they belong to. But it should certainly be someone you consider especially competent. Especially competent to serve as President of the United States of America. Ah, okay, so who then? Do they think this is like the way Bernie Sanders becomes president? By the way, John, do we know who the celebrities were? I know it was started with Martin Sheen, and then there were some others. Uh, I should probably, and I, I couldn't tell from the voices, but they're all celebrities that much. And, and what else do you have to know other than the fact that they are celebrities? Because there you have it, right? Celebrities uh, tell you who to vote for because, you know, they're famous and stuff. But I love this idea. On the one hand, you've got Democrats all upset about the sanctity of democracy because of the Russia hack. And then without batting an eyelash, without missing a beat, they turn right around and they say, but I mean, also, let's be serious, like Electoral College, you should just forget about the 60 million votes that were cast for Donald Trump and the whatever, 60 million plus votes that were cast. Really, You just do whatever you want. Well, what's the what's the purpose of the voting exercise if the Electoral College is really going to just throw that and and just even put aside for a second whether in a very literal sense they are correct that the Electoral College is in fact there to prevent a tyrant from uh, taking over America. Uh, let's just think for a second. What do they think the outcome would be if they took the election away from Trump at this point? 
they think that this would be a healing moment for the country. They, they think that everybody who voted for Trump, all the Republicans, and also a lot of former Democrats or people who voted for Barack Obama in previous elections, that they would what? They would just be like, yeah, yeah, sure, that works. Why not? This is insane, but it does go to the depths of the hatred that people have for Donald Trump, that they would they would suggest that the way around this is just to short circuit the whole system and to say, you know, sorry, I know you voted, but who cares about your vote? I also love how they leave it open ended. Like, I'm not saying vote for Hillary Clinton. Do they want just all these electors to pick random people? It's so crazy. But then again, you know, celebrities talking politics generally not a recipe for uh, brilliance back in a few the bug sexton show on the blaze radio network I suppose you could say that some of the antipathy towards the Trump administration just comes from the terrible things that post-election Trump supporters have been doing across the country. Uh, Listen to this woman talk about uh, a a horrific hate crime that happened right here in New York City, here in my hometown, uh, and by people who were very obviously Trump supporters. Play it. They were surrounding me from behind, and they were like, oh, look, it's an effing terrorist. I didn't answer. They uh, pulled my strap of the bag, and it ripped. Um, and that's when I turned around, and I was really polite, and I was like, can you please leave me alone? And everyone was looking. No one said a thing. Everyone just looked away. They kept saying, you don't belong here. Get out of this country. Go back to your country. And then finally, they uh, came really close, and they were like, take that rag off your head. The president-elect, like, just promotes this stuff and just very anti-Muslim, very Islamophobic. And it's just he's condoning this. He's condoning it. I mean, it's 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 president-elect Trump's fault that all of this is happening. And clearly these Trump supporters, these savage Trump supporters that were around this woman saying these horrible things are just reflective of much broader sentiment in the country. And, you know, this is who we are as a country. And... Oh, wait a second. She lied about the whole thing. That whole soundbite you heard about the story about this young Muslim woman. You're you're a blanking terrorist. Take that rag off your head. Trump supporters. Uh, she knew there were Trump supporters. I also that, that by the way, that was your first huge clue that there was a problem here. What they, they all had make America great again. Hats on all three of them like matching. Uh, did, did they all sort they all were attacking her saying we voted for Trump, by the way, be sure you tell the press that because we want to make sure that we get that out there. Total lie. Total and absolute lie from this woman. She's being charged uh, with filing a false report, which can get you a year in prison. She won't get any prison time, but uh, she's being filed with and also obstructing uh, official administration, which is kind of a charge they tack on there too, just to sort of add a little add a little oomph into things. But yeah, she lied. That entire thing, that entire story was a complete fabrication. Didn't happen at all. She's admitted this now, by the way. There's not. And by the way, she didn't admit it because she had a 
guilty conscience and she wanted to change. By the way, this was treated as a huge news story. Oh, you should have seen social media. Oh, the anti-Muslim, the anti-Muslim bigotry. Anti-Muslim bigotry in this country is so bad that most of the time when I read a report of anti-Muslim bigotry, I'm either like, that doesn't even, I don't even know, you know, like somebody cut you off in traffic. I'm not sure it's because of your headscarf. Or I'm like, well, that's a hoax. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm just saying that there's a lot of hoaxes. A lot of hoaxes out there. And if something were so widespread and so pernicious and so damaging to the fabric of this country, you would think, I would think, that people wouldn't have to make up instances of it, right? That we would have plenty of examples to choose from of the anti-Muslim bigotry that is just sweeping the country after Trump's election. Never mind the fact that many times on the campaign trail, Trump would talk about, you know, how many Muslims are wonderful people and he has Muslim friends and all. No, no, that that doesn't matter. It's because of the Muslim ban for non-U.S. citizens entering, entering the country that he talked about, which they walked back on that. I mean, that was a little too strong even for the Trump campaign. That was a bad idea. But then they talked about uh, banning people from coming in from countries that have a history of supporting terror. I, do, do we really need that many more immigrants from the Fatah coming into the country? I, I don't know, but I think it's a fair discussion. I think we should be allowed to discuss whether or not that's in the national security interests of the United States. And if nothing else, the Trump campaign at least opened the door to that. So at least there's on some level the possibility the possibility that the Trump campaign uh, has allowed there to be discourse on this. But back to the uh, faux hate crime here. And you see this, by the way, on college campuses, too. A lot of the time, you know, they'll be, oh, there was some somebody put a noose on somebody's door. That's a classic hate crime hoax. Why, why, why would somebody? What? Oh, but that that one. Whenever I see that one, I go, well, it's possible this is real. You know, there are still hateful, racist people out there. There are also people, I think, sometimes who realize that acting in a way that is racist is, you know, or acting out in a racist fashion is a means of getting attention and sort of, act. you know, it's like the same reason you'd start a forest fire just to start one. I mean, just because you're you're an idiot and you want to be destructive. Um, So... We have a fake hate crime here in New York City. Not not the first time that we've seen one of these reports about, but real detail. And by the way, she got caught in the lie because she had to meet with the police, and they wanted to they wanted her to talk about the, her attackers, and she couldn't describe them. And then they also had surveillance footage of where she said this happened, and nothing happened to her. So one hundred percent, she lied, and now she's saying it's because she was having family difficulties. You know, that's quite a leap uh, that your father's going to be mad at you because you were out late. So you create a you you make up a national news story in which you are the victim of anti-Muslim bigotry. And you do so, by the way, not just to impugn the candidate who is now the president elect. Right. She specifically says Donald Trump allows for this bigotry, for this fake bigotry. But she said that. Right. So we know. But also that everybody who voted for him is sort of painted with this brush that they are all anti they're all sort of hateful anti-muslim bigots themselves. They're just really bad people. And that only bad people would vote for Trump and you know all the rest of it. So uh oh it's by the way it's not the only I want to find where was the other one? There's another story that just broke in the last few days and I'm fine. Sorry guys, sometimes I have to find things on the fly here. 
Um, where did it go? Oh, here we go. A Texas a Muslim in Texas, this is from Breitbart.com, has pled guilty to uh, setting his own mosque on fire on Christmas Day 2015. He's pled guilty to felony arson and was sentenced to prison. Uh, he, this is the guy, uh, this is a guy who lit his own mosque on fire. And of course, I- immediately, um, they thought it was a hate crime. I should pull together more. I mean, just type in, um, Muslim fake hate crime and see what pops up. You'll see a whole bunch of things. Uh, but this should tell you a lot. And it also, I think goes in the column of, more of these uh, these these hate crime stories pop up because everyone's been told that uh, the Trump administration is going to more or less be rounding individuals up and putting them in camps and it's going to be so hateful and so bigoted and so terrible. All of this about a guy who's like a media mogul and born and raised in New York City. We, we really think that he's going to be some sort of skinhead KKK uh, you know, member in terms of the way he enforces. It's just, it's so beyond the pale, but this stuff is is having a real impact. It's interesting to me that they're worried about the right. Meanwhile, the minds of people on the left, young people, everybody, are just being poisoned in a, in a way that's not, again, it's not about political opposition. It's not, you know, I really, I really think that Donald Trump's changes to Obamacare could be uh, problematic for the whatever it is, 13 million people or 15 million people who get Obamacare, who are on Obamacare exchanges. No, no, it's Donald Trump is Hitler. And what you see here is a sort of continuation of the problem that you have with the Black Lives Matter movement. Very different issues, but let me just explain. Black Lives Matter says publicly they want to have a, and there's no leader of it, so therefore there's also no person to be held accountable and there can be no sort of official statement of of grievances or whatever it just gets to be a an idea a meme it can sort of motivate and mobilize a mob but black lives matter is told that police are hunting and murdering young black men across the country that's what they are told that's what they say and that is what at least a primary part of the message is right that's why black lives have to matter because they're saying they don't matter and we know they don't matter to police officers who are predominantly white, they're being killed in racist fashion. This, yes, gets people energized. It gets them emotional and it gets them motivated to show up and protest. And and it allows uh, TV anchors and pundits and other people in the media who live in, you know, doorman buildings here in New York City and entirely, uh, almost entirely, if not entirely white neighborhoods, you know, that have no crime at all to sort of wax philosophical on TV about how much they love the Black Lives Matter movement. But there can be really negative consequences to telling people that police are murdering young black men. Not everyone is going to take it literally, but some people will. And even if they don't, it really poisons minds against police in a way that there are clearly going to be real ramifications, right? Okay. So that's there with Black Lives Matter. With the Trump administration, you have the media saying that this was more or less a Russian orchestrated coup and that Trump is a bigot, an Islamophobe and a racist, and he is going to be a fascist. Well, I know that they're saying that just because they hate him and they, they enjoy the hyperbole and they're really kind of going to make a, 
you know, make a play to demean the administration as much as possible. But when otherwise seemingly respectable news outlets just want to talk about how the president-elect is a fascist and is, is more or less, a, you know, Hitler with a side swoop and no mustache, there will be very real consequences to this. You had a, a Politico writer. Now, Politico is a left, uh, a left operation, a leftist operation. I know that I had uh, somebody was a Jim Shuto at CNN corrected me when I said that the Washington Post was a leftist paper. It's like it's it's not. I'm like, well, what what do we call it? A liberal paper? It's not liberal. It's a wrong. That's the wrong usage of the term. It's definitely pro Democrat, and it's also pretty pro Sanders, who's a socialist. I'd say it's left. Anyway, I think it's I think saying it's left is is fair. Uh, but polit- a political writer tweeted something out, and granted, she has been I think disciplined at Politico, but she's leaving to go to the Atlantic. And I can't say what she tweeted on air. She's pretty reasonably well-known. She's around my age. And, you know, I'm sure, if, you know, anyway. Uh, wrote something so horrific about Donald Trump on her official Twitter account and shared it. That, you know, there, there are the mistakes. There, there's the tweets that you put out there that you're like, eh, maybe that could be misconstrued or I was in a bad mood or, you know, whatever. That's one of the reasons why I don't know. I, I can't. I'm not one of these people who can just tweet 50 times a day and just constantly share, you know, every thought I have. Maybe I should. It'd probably be better for you know my brand or whatever. But I, I feel like I like to try to live life. And this is this is my brand. This is what I do. Three hours a day of radio with you every day, Monday through Friday. Share my thoughts right here. People want to know what I think. Listen to the radio show. That's what I always tell them. people when I'm out and about. They're like, let's talk politics. But I'm like, no, no, no. How about you download today's radio show? Have fun. Enjoy. And I mean, have fun, literally, like enjoy. Uh, but this uh, this woman in Brights for Political, Julia Yaffe, uh, maybe I'm pronouncing her last name wrong. I don't know. Uh, she's actually something of a Russia uh, of a Russianist. Um, she wrote something so horrible about the president elect. And what's interesting to me is if somebody had written that about she got in a little bit of trouble. If somebody had written that about President Obama. They would never get a job in media again, ever. Ever. You'd be done. Now, we could argue about or discuss whether or not it's fair that one mistake, one tweet should ruin somebody's career forever under any circumstances. That's a whole separate discussion. But I can promise you, writing the same thing about President Obama at this stage, before he'd even taken office or in, in any ever, you would never work in no employer in media would hire you, period. No one. Alex Jones wouldn't hire you. And OK, maybe that's not true. Alex Jones might hire you. But I mean, other people wouldn't hire you. And she's going to go to the Atlantic, I think, and it's going to be fine. And she's just an example of somebody who is good writer, high functioning, you know, at least fancies herself intellectual. But her mind has been poisoned by Trump hatred. A lot of people's have. It's actually getting dangerous. I'm more worried now about the I, I'm much more worried, I should say, about the anti-Trump left than I am about the sort of far pro-Trump right much more worried. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. 
Sponsor this hour is Super Beets. Beets are fantastic for you. They're a nutrition goldmine. They're rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. Dietary nitrates convert to nitric oxide in the body, which is the secret to how it works. Now, you don't have to eat a bunch of beets in order to get the benefits, the health and nutrition benefits of beets. You can get the benefits of three whole beets in just one teaspoon of Super Beets with no beet taste. Beet juice is so potent it turned up in a magazine article with illegal performance enhancers, giving them the nickname the ultimate performance enhancing veggie. I feel confident offering this to all of my listeners and Team Buck because Super Beets is delicious, and every time I take it, it gives me a boost of energy within 20 minutes of just taking my Super Beets. So please call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister guaranteed or your money back. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367, or teambuckbeats.com. We'll be right back. Oh, wait. Hold on a second. Um, we've got more time. I thought we were at time. I- I'm sorry. I was just rushing. I was just going so fast. I want to make sure I got my full Super Beats read in there. See, I've got all that energy. Like I just took my super beats and got a boost of energy from it. So check that out. 888-900-3393 on the phones. We got some spots open. We'd love to talk to you, team. I'd like to uh, chat with some of you today. Always makes my day more fun, more interesting. So uh, light up those lines. Whatever you want to discuss, whether it's Russia hacking or, I don't know, action movie quotes. We can, well, that's really tomorrow, but I know I shouldn't jump the gun on that. See what I did there, jump the gun. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back. We're joined by Matt Continetti. He is the editor in chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Matt, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. So, a lot of uh, holdouts, it seems, or or a, a fair amount um, in the media who are still hoping somehow, hoping against hope. That this coming Monday, the Electoral College uh, will have members who stand up and and don't vote Trump. Uh, wh- wh- what do you think about this? I mean, let's like let's play this out a little bit. What would happen if they didn't vote for Trump? Well, I think there would be an insurrection in the country. <laughs> to be perfectly frank, I think this uh, story of the Democrats basically trying to gin up. The idea of an electoral college coup uh, against Donald Trump is the most irresponsible, dangerous, and lunatic thing to come out of the left in some time. And and here's why: the electoral college is there for a very specific reason. The founders of this country did not want to chain the fortunes of the entire country to the largest population centers inside it. And so they established the system in order to distribute, in a very you know, rational, common-sense way, allocate the votes throughout 
so that you wanted a majority of the states rather than just focus on the, the densest, most populated areas. So that's exactly what Donald Trump got. In fact, he got the best electoral college result of any Republican in basically a quarter century. And yet the Democrats are still in denial about this election. And so the idea that somehow they think they would overturn the results of this election after Donald Trump had won states, no Republican had won in decades, is just, it's lunacy. It's, it's, it's a sign that clearly they have not come to grips with this election. And indeed, the, the fact that they lost is now un, unleashing them to succumb to their worst impulses. I mean, you've got even the opinion pages of the New York Times, why GOP Electoral College members can vote against Trump. I mean, that that was published uh, today. I'm sorry, that, that, that's from today. Uh, these are these people and these platforms and, and media outlets are straight up advocating. It's interesting. On the one hand, when it comes to the Russia hack, it's the, it's the dangerous subversion of our democracy. And, you know, it's a bipartisan issue, everybody. We need to all be on the same page with that. But when it comes to the Electoral College, Meh, democracy, democracy, who cares? Well, these are the same people who, since the 2000 election, have been calling for the Electoral College to be abolished. Now, and indeed, there's been calls for that to happen after the 2016 election, because it is true Donald Trump did lose the popular vote, mainly because of his drubbing in California, an overwhelmingly blue state. And... So how can it make any sense for, for you to say on the one hand, abolish the Electoral College, and then on the other say, no, we need the Electoral College to go against the will of the people in the various states and put Hillary Clinton in, uh, despite – it's just – it's just so clear. Did, I mean, did you hear the celebrity, uh, the Martin Sheen and oh, company, yeah. saying, don't vote for Trump? We're not telling you who to vote for. It doesn't have to be Hillary Clinton. Just don't vote for yeah. Trump. Well, how is that supposed to work? I mean, well, do we just not have uh, a president? You know, these Hollywood flakes probably think that the Electoral College would put Dr. Jill Stein in or something like that. I mean, it's just you can get you can get in the weeds here, and it is truly conspiratorial thickets. Uh, that are pushing this line. But, you know, there's some people who say, oh, well, maybe the Electoral College would somehow bring Kasich in. Kasich wasn't a factor in this election. Kasich made some wrong choices in retrospect about this election and about his relationship to the party and its nominee. Many people did. Why on earth would, after Donald Trump picks up these states that no Republican has won in decades, would electors throw the election to the governor of Ohio who didn't even back the Republican nominee. It's just, it, it, I have to say, it just drives me crazy because here you are supposed to, the Democrats in the media are supposed to be the guardians, right, of decorum and responsible behavior and principle, right, in contrast with Donald Trump. And yet with this story, with the Electoral College story, they are revealing themselves to be children. You uh, said yesterday in an interview, which is up on freebeacon.com, that you view Trump's victory as a repudiation of Obama's legacy. Um, how, how so? I and mean, give me some of the specifics. Well, uh, I, I mean, there's not. It's a repudiation in the sense that there's not going to be much of Obama's legacy left after four four years. You have to think about it. Uh, Barack Obama came into office. Uh, he wanted to basically create a new foundation, his words, uh, to the American economy. 
That included Wall Street reform, that included Obamacare, and that included uh, some tax increases, but also it included the alternative energy spending, right? Well, what what did Trump run, run against? <laughs> he ran against Obamacare. He ran against the environmental policies that have crippled the fossil fuel industry in this country and many jobs that go with it. And he ran against tax increases. He wants to cut taxes. He ran a full spectrum opposition to the Obama domestic agenda. And moreover, he ran against the key part of Obama's foreign policy agenda, which is the Iran deal. So you have a situation, especially now that the Republicans have control of both chambers of Congress, where you can see all of those supposed legacies of Obama being undone by the end of Donald Trump's first term. And moreover, now that we have, uh, we'll have a conservative replacement for Scalia, and we might have up to two more justices in the next term, uh, the next presidential term, being replaced by Donald Trump. So there on the court, you would have a, a pretty much a solid conservative majority on the court. This would be a blow to the left, um, unlike uh, really anything they've experienced since Ronald Reagan. And so that's why I say it's a repudiation of, of Obama's politics and, and a policy agenda, which was never that popular. Obama was always personally popular and continues to be. It's what he did that was unpopular, and Trump basically ran on a pledge to undo what Obama has done. Matt, uh, we've been talking a lot on the show about the Russia hacks and the election. I just wanted to get uh, sort of your your overall take on on where that is now and how much of a big deal we should treat, uh, whether we should treat it as a big deal. What do you think? Well, it's certainly a big deal. Uh, cyber is a incredible, incredibly important part of uh, overarching national security strategy and challenges that America faces. And I don't think there's any doubt among the intelligence community that the Russians interfered in the election in terms of some of this hacking. Where the dispute is, is whether they explicitly interfered with the intent of electing Trump. And there, there is much less certainty. And the Democrats have seized on one CIA assessment to senators that it was classified and leaked to the Washington Post, which is the kind of now the tribune of the Trump opposition opposition to Trump. They've seized on that one assessment to say somehow that Putin is responsible for Trump's election. And that is just going way too far, in my view. Uh, And we also have to say, okay, why was Russia able to hack into some of these systems? It's because the Obama administration has done nothing in eight years to respond to or deter Russian and Chinese cyber attacks. And if you go into the details of some of these stories that appear in places like the Post and the New York Times, you'll find many Democrats blaming Obama for not doing enough to counteract these cyber intrusions. Uh, And so I'd like to see an investigation of the Obama cyber policy as well as an investigation of what Russia was up to. And, And it's meaningless if it's not actually met with some type of response. And so I'd like to hear some more from the Democrats about what they intend to do in the future. What is their preferred counter-cyber strategy? They're not talking about that. All they're doing is trying to cast doubt 
and illegitimacy on Trump's election. Yes. I mean, I think that is the key point. Uh, I've said this before on the show, but I'll just tell you this. My, my sense of this is they keep saying it's about an investigation. OK, well, we we already we're told that we know that it was Russia. In fact, as of today, we're told we know that Putin specifically out of a grudge against Hillary was pushing this whole thing. So if we already know it's Russia, we know it was a Putin grudge. We know how they did it. The investigation, okay, fine. What what are the Democrats who are cla- – I mean, it's bipartisan, too. We've got John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and others. But specifically the Democrats who are crying out for investigation, what do they think they're going to find? We're, we're being told that they already know basically everything that happened, and there's no way to prevent uh, somebody from emailing you and saying, hey, I'm your system IT – you know, I'm your system administrator. Give me your password. If you give them your password, they're going to hack into your emails. Well, the goal isn't to find anything. The goal is to have a report come out six months from now or nine months from now that will create another news cycle about Russia and Trump and cyber that will disrupt politics and disrupt whatever policy agenda the Trump administration is pursuing. That's the goal for many of the Democrats. Now, obviously, John McCain, Lindsey Graham are interested in, in, in what has happened and probably would be more open to what I suggested, which was also look at our failure to respond over the years to these hacks. You know, what, what did we do when China hacked the uh, Office of Personnel Management database? We, I think, uh, the, what, for all I can tell, we came to some sort of gentleman's agreement with China. <laughs> well, that's not going to hold up in the, in the coming years. And we certainly, with the Russia thing, it's explicit in that original Washington Post story. Obama administration officials did not want to respond to the Russian hacking because they were afraid of what Russia might do in response. That's no way to conduct national security policy. What do you think of Rex Tillerson as uh, Secretary of State, by the way? That's also gotten a lot. That not only is getting a lot of attention just because of the whole big business and People are upset that he's helped bring so much fossil fuel out of the ground, which I think is bizarre, and, well, that's a separate discussion. But also his ties to Putin means that it ties into this whole story about Russian influence in the election, and people are sort of conflating all these things or bringing all these things together. They are. I think Tillerson is eminently qualified to be Secretary of State. Uh, I also think that it's a good thing for a Secretary of State to have pre-existing relationships with world leaders. I mean— Diplomacy is built on relationships. I think there are a lot of questions about Rex Tillerson's worldview. You know, he really doesn't have one. He's really spent his career at Exxon, and all of his public comments about foreign affairs are related to Exxon's interests. And he has been very frank in the past when asked about specific details of foreign policy. He says, look, I I don't know much about that. I'm going to leave that to other people. I know what's good for Exxon and what I'm trying to do for shareholders. So he has been skeptical of sanctions, that is for sure, as the CEO of Exxon. And, of course, he does have a a good personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. Now, I happen to think that one can have a relationship with Putin and also think that Putin is acting contrary to America's interests. The two can go together. But what will be important at the hearings is how Tillerson handles questions that aren't even tied to Putin. What does he have to say about the Syrian civil war? What does he have to say about the South China Sea, North Korea, and uh, nuclear weapons? What does he say about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? What does he say about Africa policy? Uh, what does he say about Venezuela, all of the, Cuba, all of these global hotspots that the Secretary of State will have to deal with in the next four years? 
he has to have good answers, I think, to reassure Republican senators that he's up to the job. I happen to think he will have good answers. He's he's very impressive just from a business standpoint. We also know, of course, he loves Abraham Lincoln and was instrumental in the renovation of Ford's Theater uh, earlier in this decade. And um, that's a good sign because I'm a, I'm a Lincoln fan, too. So anyone who's a fan of Lincoln, I, I have good feelings about. Matt Continetti is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. You can follow him at Continetti on Twitter and read his latest at freebeacon.com. Matt, great to have you, sir. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Team phones are open, 888-900-3393. Our sponsor this half hour, Yankee Hill Machine, YHM.net. That's where you want to go. That's the website where you can see some of the finest craftsmanship in the firearms industry on display. Yankee Hill Machine designs, develops, and manufactures some of the best uh, firearms and sound suppressors and accessories on the market. They've got custom-made ARs top to bottom. They've got all kinds of fantastic accessories. Uh, they're a family-owned company. They're all made in America, right here in the U.S. of A., based out of Massachusetts. YHM.net, you can see their whole catalog there. It's a great time of year to do a little shopping for yourself. YHM.net, Yankee Hill Machine. That is YHM.net. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we've got some calls up. We'll take them. Scott in New Hampshire, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck. Shields high. Shields high, buddy. So, the question I wanted to ask you, and it seems like nobody seems to be asking this, is there's 55 electors that have signed on to Nancy Pelosi's letter regarding getting a briefing from the CIA about the Russian hacks. And only one of them would be one that would even be able to vote for Donald Trump. So what's the strategy here? Is it just looking for stupid people fishing? Uh, I I think it's virtue signaling. I think that these electors figure that this is going to be kind of a resume bullet for them going forward. You know, I was one of the ones who stood up against Trump and, you know, they'll get on MSNBC. Maybe they'll get like a talking head gig somewhere, get some speaking engagements. Uh, it's it's just all about the individuals who are, who are doing it because they are not going to do anything. I mean, in the New York Times editorial, I mentioned to you, they had this law professor who's saying even the electors who are bound by law could violate the law, uh, you know, by viola- bound by state law could violate it because what's what are you going to do throw them in jail it's like okay well i mean i I guess we are just at that point now where where we are you know pushing for a soviet style system we're like we just count the votes how we want to count them i mean this is nonsense absolutely well i just wanted your input on that one i mean it it just i can't crawl into the mind of the average liberal and and figure out these yeah it's it's icky in there scott be careful don't go too don't go too deep into the liberal's mind Thanks for calling in, buddy. Shields high. Uh, Rocky from Nebraska. Good to talk to you again. What's up? Hey, hey, Buck. That's funny. Don't try to go too deep into the liberal's mind. <laughs> I like that. Hey, uh, that uh, interview that you had with Poppy, 
I just want to say kudos to you. That was fantastic. And I know, like, when you go on CNN, that uh, it's like going into the lion's den. Like you said, they put you in a separate room and all that good stuff. But uh, what what did they said? Because CNN cut it out of their online uh, video that you go up and listen to, that they said about you endangering what? Oh, no, that was on a different segment. That wasn't with Bobby Harlow. That was on CNN. That was it. One of their national security analysts said that by when I say that Democrats are exaggerating the importance of the Russian hacking in the election, I am endangering those serving overseas. It was not the first time that analyst at CNN had made that accusation. This is like her go to because she just wants to pretend to sort of be like, nonpartisan national security person who always favors Democrats, which is obviously a there, there's a bit of a conflict there. Um, but, yeah, I loved going on Tommy's show last night. They had that montage of all the times that I got interrupted uh, in the other segment. I didn't even remember. I, I'm just so used to it now. I can't even get I can't get out two sentences without the anchor not jumping in to add to what I'm saying or even to ask me a question, but just to contradict what I'm saying. And this is the anchor. It's not even a pundit. I know, I know. I uh, I was, after I heard that on Monday, I was trying to call in, and unfortunately, that's when you, uh, or was it Tuesday, when you lost your signal. I was trying oh, to, yeah, I, I know. That was, was a sad, that was a sad day for us all. It, <laughs> sad day. It, oh, man, it, it had me really ticked off. And I was yeah, me too. Really Trust me, no one more than me, man. I was going to throw things at the wall in here. I was very, the Freedom Hut was about to get trashed by yours truly. I was very angry. Anyway, uh, Rocky, great to talk to you, man. Shields, hi. Team, we've got a lot more show. We're only halfway through. Stay right where you are. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Emily Zanotti joins us now. She is the political editor at Heat Street. What's up, Emily? Not much. How's it going? You know, just rocking and rolling, doing some radio from here at NYC. <laughs> You're up in the Windy City, right? It's 20 degrees here, so I assume it must be like zero degrees there. Yeah, the below freezing city today, actually, it's like icicles outside. See, this is why people are like, move to Chicago. You, you, the real estate's cheaper, it's beautiful, and people are nicer. I'm just like, but you all freeze in the winter. And then they kind of just say, yeah. But otherwise, There's it like a-, a really great three months a year. But <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. All right. So let, let's, let's get into it. Your Heat Street latest. Uh, let's start with this tech summit. I haven't talked to the tech summit yet, so you could give us a little background on this. There was a big tech summit at Trump Tower all the sort of titans of the digital world there, except for Dorsey mm-hmm. of Twitter. What, what's going on? So uh, yesterday, Peter Thiel, who's been working with the Trump campaign probably since the beginning of the campaign, he's been heavily involved, big donor. Um, he got a bunch of tech bigwigs to come to uh, Trump Tower yesterday, and they included like Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook, um, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, even Tim Cook from Apple, and they, they met together to try to discuss what the future of tech policy looked like, anti, um, antitrust issues, things like that. Very serious stuff for the tech uh, industry. But 
it didn't include Jack Dorsey of Twitter because back in the campaign, the Twitter advertising company and Trump had a issue over an emoji. Uh, the Trump people had an agreement from Twitter that they would make a custom emoji for the hashtag crooked Hillary that, you know, kind of bubbling up on Twitter and uh, Twitter made the emoji. They got almost all the way to deploying this awesome hashtag. And then Jack Dorsey stepped in and said, nope, we're not doing business with any presidential campaigns. So Trump took that personally. And now he's uh, not hanging out with Twitter anymore. I mean, Kanye will go and talk about multicultural issues with Trump. I feel like Dorsey should at least be willing to hear the man out. You would think, but he's been uh, one of the few tech bigwigs who's actually spoken out that he is not going to participate in the Trump agenda. And it's been this big thing for Twitter. And, uh, you know, strangely, he's been he's been unwilling, even though, you know, Apple, Jeff Bezos, who owns The Washington Post, he and Trump haven't gotten along at all. And uh, yet they were able to sit around the um, the table at Trump Tower and have coffee and chat about Amazon. And it was all fine. Tell me about this other story here. Twitter bullies opera prodigy after she agrees to perform at Trump's inauguration. Hmm. Yeah. Poor Jackie Avancho. Um, so she won. Well, she was the runner up on America's Got Talent back in 2010. And she's just adorable. She's like 16 years old and she's a opera prodigy. She sings beautiful soprano. She agreed to do. Donald Trump's inauguration. She's going to do a duet with Andrea Batali, and they're going to sing, um, I believe, the national anthem. And as soon as it was announced, uh, Twitter decided to crush her dreams and tell her that she was never going to sell another album, that she sucks as an opera singer. Um, and that's being nice. I mean, they were pretty profane. Uh, but yeah, they, they bullied her for hours as soon as she just decided to do this thing, which she said was an honor and a privilege, and she gets to do it on a national stage for the president. She was very excited, and now she's probably crying. How could people be mean to a 16-year-old opera prodigy for wanting to sing the national anthem? I mean, the, the left just hates America. Yeah, they just hate everything. Like, there's nothing that can make them happy anymore. I, don't, I, I saw some stuff about this, by the way, so you'll have to also, I haven't talked about it on the radio shows, so you'll be updating me as well as the audience right now. This professor who said students who voted for the terrorist Trump should stand and defend themselves. What I, I saw, like, meaning I saw headlines on Twitter and Facebook about this, but I didn't read the, I didn't read the story. California professor did this. What happened? Yeah, she's a really wonderful person. Um, so she decided to go on a 30-minute rant in her classroom. This is in Orange, uh, Orange Coast College out in California. She decided to go on a 30-minute rant about how Donald Trump is the worst person ever and that anyone who voted for him is a terrorist. And she asked students who voted for Donald Trump who are in her class to stand up and not just to defend themselves, but also so the other students in her class could see who they needed to protect themselves from. Because obviously, uh, anyone who voted for Donald Trump is just a huge disaster of a human being and going to probably assault anyone around them. Wow. And this guy, what's the latest here? I mean, are people, uh, there's obviously been some news coverage of it. There's been some outcry. He's standing behind this? She's, yeah, she actually oh, is she, standing sorry, behind yes. it. Yeah, she's standing behind it. Her union is standing behind her. She says that she's gotten a bunch of death threats um, after all of this went public. And, and this is 
pretty, probably pretty par for the internet. I mean, they will threaten anything. And so uh, there's a YouTube video out of her and it's been going viral. Um, but she says she's going to fight it and that uh, she was right in sticking up for her beliefs in her classroom. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, educate yeah. me a bit in the progressive lingo here, because you've got a piece up on uh, don't. Oh, it says don't, the title is don't know what axes of privilege or manarchism means. Look it up in the new social justice wiki. All right, let's start with manarchism, because that sounds kind of awesome. So manarchism is just regular anarchy or anarchism, but social justice warriors are very concerned that anarchism is mostly practiced by men. And so there's a movement within social justice circles to gender neutralize anarchism. And so they've labeled men who are anarchists, specifically white men who are anarchists, Manarchists, um, and there's also um, brochialism, which refers to white men who espouse the socialist ideal. So, whichever side of the uh, political spectrum you fall on, you probably have a, a, a white male problem. See, I thought brochialism is when a bunch of uh, young male white millennials in a bar all made sure that they had Pabst Blue Ribbon and the same quantity before they would drink. <laughs> I'm learning something new. <laughs> yep. Share and share alike. <laughs> what is axes of privilege, by the way? Axes of privilege. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> axes of privilege. Axes of, of privilege, Buck. Get it straight. <laughs> so this is the theory, uh, at, at least that I learned from the social justice wiki. My eyes have been opened this week because I spent a lot of time on the social justice wiki learning all about all the different social justice items. But apparently, in social justice warrior groups, so feminists, anarchists, um, people who fight racism, all these, these small social justice groups, there's actually a hierarchy of how social justice they are. And so if you belong to one group, you have to recognize that you have certain privileges that other groups might not. So I guess being, you know, a young white woman, I would have privileges that people in other social justice related groups might not have so you you, out, so you outrank have, me you outrank me right away yeah right? so i outrank you okay. <laughs> just by virtue of gender well you know depending on uh, how whether you believe gender is binary or you know whatever um but but yeah there's a, an axis of privilege so you consult this axis of privilege to make sure that you are not oppressing other social justice warriors Ah, okay. So mm -hmm. the, the wiki is then just trying to be helpful. So the it's the constantly changing helpful. language of the social justice left, at least now there's sort of one place where you can go and find out that uh, you can only mansplain if you have some other means of making sure that you are in the hierarchy proper. Like mansplaining can be canceled right. out by, say, being in another protected group. I don't know. I, I think it, it, it gets complex. Yeah, you know, if maybe you're missing a limb or, you know, you you recognize your inner femininity, maybe that would help you if you were accused of mansplaining. I'm not really sure, but this, this wiki will help you out. All right. Good to know. Uh, oh, and uh, one more thing here. What are the 
since Russia is now dominating the headlines, and it really is, what are the conspiracy theories that are swirling once again over the DNC uh, staffer Seth Rich who was murdered? You got a piece on Heat Street on this. Yeah, so I've been following this story since July, and uh, a DNC employee was murdered in a robbery back in July, and he kind of got mixed up into a bunch of conspiracy theories because it hit around the same time that the DNC was hacked. And so people thought, well, perhaps, you know, since in lore the Clintons are often accused of, you know, attacking their enemies, that he might have been involved in the leak of the DNC emails. There's no evidence to support this, but now that Russia has come out, uh, or it's come out that Russia is behind this DNC uh, hack, um, his name is resurfacing. And so people are starting to wonder whether this is to get attention off of uh, the staffer's involvement in the hack. But it's it's convoluted, but uh, like Pizzagate, it's entirely based on Internet investigation. So it's definitely got some uh, interesting angles to it. Indeed. All right. Emily Zanotti, political editor at Heat Street. She is E.M. Zanotti on Twitter. And Zanotti's sounds like a fantastic restaurant name, I am just saying. Um, it is an open one. <laughs> I think I've, I've thought about it many times, actually. What would be your cuisine of choice? Oh, definitely Italian, right? Just making sure, but I didn't see, I didn't want to mansplain, and I also didn't want to pigeonhole you and make some sort of gender or ethnic-based jump to conclusions moment here. But yeah, Zanotti's Pizzeria in Chicago is obviously a place I'm going to come check out. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Good to talk to you. Team, uh, 888-900-3393. We will be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, it's starting, team. It is starting. Facebook is coming courtesy of a report on Business Insider. Facebook is now going to um, editorialize on what is news. This is a big deal. Um, this. This is not something that we should just sort of let pass without noticing. Uh, You have here. Let me just give you the beginning of this Business Insider piece. Facebook is going to start fact checking, labeling and burying fake news and hoaxes in the news feed. This is the company announced on Thursday. The decision comes after Facebook received heated criticism for its role in the spreading of a deluge of political misinformation in the U.S. political uh, election to combat fake news. Facebook has partnered with a short list of media organizations, including Snopes and ABC News, that are part of an international fact-checking network led by Pointer, a nonprofit school for journalism located in St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, my. Here we go. Uh, first of all, I've never heard of this Pointer thing. Uh, and this is the beginning of open uh, open editorializing in the Facebook feeds. Instead of just what gets shared a lot will get shared a lot, and what people want to read, they can read. And activity, you know, the algorithm recognizing activity on certain pieces and using that as a sort of jumping off point for whether or not something should get attention on Facebook. What you're going to see here 
is increasingly, um, well, it'll take a while, but then people realize, wait a second, um, fake news is what exactly? Is it fake news when somebody editorializes on real news and takes an opinion and that starts to go viral, but it's, you know, it says something that perhaps is not yet established fact, but is under the sort of opinion heading? Is that going to be treated as fake news? Uh, this is this is exactly what I, I figured was going to happen, and it's why there's been so much uh, agitation in the m- mainstream media and so much agitating for exactly this to happen. Uh, as we can see, people want there to be a, uh, a sort of a, an editorial hand in the way social media sites do all of this stuff. And now Facebook is essentially or is coming out and saying, yes, we, we are going to combat fake news. Uh, we're going to stop it from being shared on Facebook. How long before you see websites with long track records of accurate reporting sharing information, or rather being barred from sharing information that you and I would want to see because some on the left view it as fake news? I mean, this is the next level. You see, they can't really, because of the Internet, the left can't control the news cycle the way they used to. They still are a dominant voice in it, but they don't have full control. But if they can control the social media platforms that control the sharing of different media outlets um, or that are the sort of main uh, gateway for people to share information online, uh, they can regain some of that previously uh, unchallenged authority to dictate what's in the news cycle, to tell you what counts and what doesn't. Uh, to tell you what is a real story and what is not. You don't get to decide for yourself. Should be noted that Facebook is a private company and they can do this. Uh, this is not a sort of First Amendment issue as a matter of law, um, but it, it is an issue in terms of the marketplace of ideas. And also, look, Zuckerberg won't meet with Trump because he's so pro-legal and illegal immigration. And he's the head of this whole thing. He's the head of Facebook. So by no means, I think, can we sit around and take any solace in, oh, well, Facebook will be nonpartisan and nonpolitical. That's not going to be the case. Uh, I can guarantee you the people they're going to have working on this project to eliminate fake news, uh, not a lot of them spend much time on Fox News or The Blaze or uh, Town Hall or Drudge or you name it. All right, so we all know how this is going to go down, and this is the beginning of it. I think this is very significant. All right, team, Hour 3 is coming up. Got a very interesting guest planned for you, so stay with me and you'll see what the surprise is. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome to hour three. We're very pleased to be joined now by author Mark Pendergrast. He is the author of Uncommon Grounds: The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. Mark, great to have you. I'm glad to be here. 
Uh, so uh, first, if we could tell me a bit about the discovery and the sort of the, the earliest days of coffee, the one thing that I ingest every day that I could just not think of living without. <laughs> well, it's a little unclear. Uh, it, it's fairly uh, certain that somebody figured out to throw the seeds into uh, uh, the embers of a fire and uh, roast them and then grind them up and put them in hot water. I think it probably happened by accident. Sometime in the 1400s in Ethiopia, which is where coffee grows naturally, it's the birthplace of coffee. So I would say probably then, but there are hints that it was used before that, that people knew that there was something magical, caffeine it turns out, and some other things, in the beans and also in the leaves. So they would make... Uh, a sort of a fermented wine out of the cherries, uh, and they would uh, brew the leaves as well, but probably the 1400s. And how did it make its way? I mean, Ethiopia, obviously kind of off the beaten path for the cafes of Europe. How do these beans that are growing in Ethiopia uh, make their way into markets? Where do we get Turkish coffee? How does all that happen? Well, first, the Arabs, the Arab world discovered coffee in a big way, uh, and there were coffee houses throughout uh, that world. They wanted to keep it a monopoly, uh, so they wouldn't let any fertile beans be exported. Uh, they were growing them in Yemen across the Red Sea from Ethiopia as well as there. Uh, so for a while, uh, Europeans heard about it. Uh, the travelers brought back tales of this hot black brew that everybody sat around drinking uh, as the social beverage. Uh, but it wasn't really until the 1600s uh, that Europe discovered coffee in a big way. Starting in about 1650, by 1700, there were 2,000 coffee houses in London alone. And coffee really was responsible for changing the way of life uh, in Europe. Until then, people drank an awful lot of alcoholic beverages, uh, and so they sort of sobered up, and it produced a lot of uh, wonderful results, uh, literature, music, uh, and a lot of revolutions, as a matter of fact, were planned uh, in coffee houses. Yeah, this is, I know is mentioned in the literature from your book. Uh, what's the what's the role of coffee, my favorite beverage, in overthrowing governments? Well, I think it makes people uh, think more clearly and uh, become more sociable in terms of, of planning things together. So, you know, one of the early stories in the book was that the uh, governor of Mecca didn't like people writing satirical verses about him in 1511, and he tried to close the coffee houses, and he failed to do it then. Uh, so there's a long history of sort of uh, fomenting uh, uh, seditious thought in coffee houses. And it's been so. It was it, where was it banned? By the way, I mean you mentioned the bans. Where has coffee been banned in the past? Well, the governor of Mecca tried to ban it there, but uh, he was quickly overridden. Um, in Germany, uh, uh, King uh, Frederick the Great uh, decided that everybody should drink beer. He didn't like coffee being uh, uh, grown. Uh, I mean, being uh, imported. Um, I'm trying to think who else banned it. The, the Turks, uh, some Turkish guy banned it for a while and had people sewn into sacks and thrown into the Bosphorus if they drank coffee. So there were many efforts to suppress it. A, a lot 
uh, people thought that it was bad for you, um, uh, including in America. Uh, around the turn of the 20th century, uh, John Harvey Kellogg, for whom Kellogg's is named, decided coffee was horrible for you, and he promoted uh, substitutes made out of barley and other grains. And so that kind of stuck. A lot of people still think that it, it's bad for you, or as a matter of fact, it's it's actually probably good for you. In yeah. What's your? I mean, you wrote a, you literally wrote the book on this. So, what's your take on on the health benefits, or or the most current research, at least, as to the health benefits on coffee? Well, you know, you can't really uh, test by injecting people uh, with things. So you have to go by epidemiological studies. And, but they've done relative and, – and back in the 1980s, early 80s, they thought, oh, coffee causes pancreatic cancer and breast lumps and heart disease and all kinds of horrible things. But the studies weren't done very well, and they didn't, you know, sort out people who smoked from people who drank coffee. And there was a great deal of overlap in those days. Now they've done much bigger uh, epidemiological studies that seem to indicate that not only does coffee not harm you – it helps to reduce liver cancer, suicide, uh, and basically moderate coffee drinking appears to be good for you. And it's the second most valuable exported legal commodity on earth. Uh, what's number one? That's out of not true, actually. Uh, I I, uh, I help to promote that myth. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because everybody in the coffee world kept telling me that that was true. Uh, but it turns out, subsequent to my first edition, uh, in the second edition, I said, oops, that's an urban myth. Uh, coffee's probably about, oh, 15th or something. Uh, if you <laughs> okay, so it's a ways back like, there. All right, what's number, do you know what number one, two, and three are out of curiosity, or at least number one? Number one is oil. That makes uh, sense. And that we always knew. But I think second is something like copper. Uh, so if you're talking about food commodities, it's probably higher up on the chain. But it, it's... It's grown in about 50 countries. You ask how it's spread around the world. You know, it, 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 the, uh, the Dutch finally got hold of some fertile beans and began growing them in Java and Ceylon. And then the French got hold of a plant, and a French lieutenant in 1723 brought it to the island of Martinique. And from that one plant probably descends most of the coffee in the Western Hemisphere. So it now grows in a girdle between the tropics of Capricorn and Cancer. Uh, it has to be grown in uh, tropical regions where it never freezes. It grows best up on uh, volcanic mountainsides between 3,000 and 6,000 feet up, at least the good stuff, Arabica coffee. Robusta is another brand which you'll mostly find in uh, some espressos and instant coffee and, and that can grow lower down. Where, where I know Starbucks is opening their sort of high end, uh, th their high end stores relatively soon to try to capture that part of the of the coffee market. Right, there's going to be I think ten dollar cups of coffee will be available in these in these new things. Uh, with the most expensive, the best coffee in the world, where does it come from? Well, you know, you, uh, there's big arguments about that. The most expensive coffee tends to be the most rare, but not necessarily the best. So, for instance, Kopi Luwak is, I think, the most expensive coffee still. And that's coffee which is digested through the gut of the civet cat and pooped out the other end. Uh, and it adds a certain je ne sais quoi, gutsy quality to the coffee. I've heard about this. This is really <laughs> a thing that, that people drink? 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's it's considered a real delicacy in Indonesia. Um, but uh, you know, some of the most expensive coffee in the world that's uh, processed normally is Panama Gesha. Uh, or Jamaica Blue Mountain, everybody has heard of, or Kona, and they're you know, it's it's like asking somebody what's the best wine in the world. Um, you know, it depends on your taste, and there are so many wonderful and different wines. And the same thing is true of coffee. Uh, it's you know, some of the best coffee in the world is still grown in Ethiopia. It's really quite unique and wonderful, and particularly in an area area called Yirgacheff. Um, but I also love coffee from uh, Guatemala, from Costa Rica, from Papua New Guinea, uh, from uh, Kenya. Uh, there's some wonderful coffees coming out of uh, India, from Thailand. Who knew? In fact, I wrote another book about coffee from Thailand called Beyond Fair Trade, which just came out last year. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, by the way, that's not so jolly about coffee. It has a history of slavery. The Dutch enslaved the, the natives of the East Indies in order to grow coffee. It's a very labor-intensive crop. Uh, and the Spaniards and the French uh, enslaved, brought Africans to grow their coffee trees, slaves, the Portuguese to Brazil. In fact, Brazil had slavery until 1888, longer than anyone else in the Western Hemisphere, because uh, of coffee. And to this day, you know, you have to be careful about where your coffee comes from, which is why fair trade coffee has become popular, because you can be sure that they're treated decently. Uh, but fair trade is not the only way to, to make sure that you're getting – I mean, the good news is if you're drinking really good coffee, probably the people have been treated decently. I'm speaking to Mark Pendergrass, who's the author of Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World, available on Amazon. You can also go to Mark Pendergrass. Dot com for more, and he has more recent books as well. Uh, Mark, I want to ask you, whenever I'm in, uh, I'm here in New York City, and, and I go into a, a coffee shop where they have this board full of all these different names, but a bunch of them strike me as Italian, because they clearly, you know, cappuccino, macchiato. How did that all start happening? Well, the Italians started to, you know, Venice was a great importing place, so they began to get coffee beans back in the 1600s uh, very early on, and you had street vendors. So they developed, you know, espresso was invented by an Italian around 1901, where you very finely grind uh, roasted coffee, and then you force hot water through it at high pressure, and it produces what we now know as espresso. So... Uh, Cappuccino and macchiato and all those other things are just basically uh, milk with uh, co some coffee in it. <laughs> no, I, I know what it is, but where does it come from? I mean, I drink it all the time, right? But cappuccino, is it, right. I remember, is it the cappuccine monks or something like that? Aren't there these stories about this? Um, yes. Supposedly, they're the first ones who made it. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it, it certainly comes from Italy, you have to be a little careful. I mean, the Starbucks version of a latte or a cappuccino isn't necessarily what you're going to get in Italy, and, and they don't tend to drink it except at breakfast, maybe. Um, so they drink a lot more straight espresso than we do. Do you drink black? Are you, are you a black coffee man yourself, if I may ask? I mean, you spend a lot of time knowing about and setting coffee, or do you throw some milk in there? I do throw milk in there, to be honest with you. Um, when I'm tasting coffee for writing about it, I don't. Uh, I will cup it 
by uh, slurping just the straight stuff right into my mouth. Um, but to drink it for breakfast, I usually add a little milk. Last sure. question for you, Mark. If someone is there, such thing as good, like sort of Keurig cup based coffee, or is that just asking for too much? Yeah, I think Keurig is actually uh, quite good. It, I don't think it's as good as fresh roasted and fresh brewed coffee. And my preferred way of brewing is with a French press, although it's kind of messy to clean up. Um, but uh, no, it's not bad at all. Uh, depends on the beans that go into it. Uh, but, you know, I had a Christmas party the other day, and I dragged my Keurig up for that. Uh, All right. It's a lot easier for guests to use it. Okay, cool. Mark Pendergrast is author of Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. And, Mark, what's your more recent book? It's called Beyond Fair Trade. Uh, it's, it's an interesting book. It was published in Canada, so it hasn't made a lot of impression here, but it, it's a... Uh, it's about a little tiny village in Thailand called Doi Chang. It means Elephant Mountain. And it's kind of part anthropological. It's about a hill tribe called the Aka who were persecuted, who used to grow opium poppies, and then they couldn't do that anymore. They were starving to death. Their women were uh, prostituting themselves and getting AIDS. And coffee has saved their lives and made them wealthy beyond their wildest beliefs. And it's sort of like the Starbucks story of Thailand. It, it's, I, I do recommend people take a look at it. They, can, they may have to special order it. Okay. Well, everyone's listening, so they can check it out. Mark uh, Pendergrass, great to have you, sir. Thanks for making the time today. Thank you. Take care. See, team, I drink coffee. I figured we'd learn a little bit about coffee. It's how we roll in the Freedom Hut. It's just const- it's analysis, it's knowledge, occasionally some comedy, even accidental comedy. Though none of that today that I'm aware of. Back in a few. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. I, I just I find the history of food and different foods fascinating. That's why we had the coffee author on there. Um, I had read his uh, I read this sort of sample chapter of his book that you can get for free on Kindle. I hadn't read the whole book though, uh, and uh, I, I've read whole books on chocolate and on olives. I'm trying to think of other foods. We'll get some of those on. Some of this stuff is fascinating. The politics around it. I've mentioned to you in the past the sort of politics that surround coffee within the office as in if there's options where you go and i told you the cia there was red state blue state there was dunkin donuts or starbucks um but also uh, it was like this one in the nypd intelligence division here in new york there was a very like hipster everybody who worked there had to have lots of tattoos and piercings but i mean the coffee was just delicious i mean the lattes were like 550 it was really expensive but uh, the coffee was amazing. And the sort of intelligence community analysts that were assigned to the intelligence division, people like me or that had joined up with the intel division, went there. And the police officers, the NYPD that we were sort of uh, co-located with, they all went to a nearby gas station for their coffee. And this created quite a there was quite a rift because you would see the intelligence community analysts, you know, and, and there was a lot of 
talk about how they thought that you know those they thought they were all a bunch of fancy fancy pants types uh, going to get their coffee from as the cops called them the anarchists, <laughs> which I was kind of like. There was like, yeah, do you get your uh, anarchist coffee today? Yeah, what did that cost you? Like fifty bucks. And it wasn't 50, but it was quite expensive. And they would go over to the gas station. They'd come back. They'd say, yeah, that's right, $1.50 and uh, the, the creamer that you don't have to refrigerate. And I was just like, yeah, you know, this is differences in, differences in one's approach to caffeination, both equally, equally valid, totally acceptable, you know, different strokes for different folks. Uh, John in, in Bucks County. Named for I wish me, but apparently not. What's up, John? What's up, John? Hi, Buck. How are you? Good, good. Okay. Uh, yeah, I want to call about uh, Trump. Uh, I, I've called you a few times before the election, hoping that Trump would, would win. I think what I told you was I, I thought he'd govern um, uh, as a businessman, you know, have good, good, good people around him. I, I'm not disappointed with what he's been doing so far. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, my wife comes from upstate Pennsylvania. They're not a very political bunch up there, and if they are, they're mostly uh, Democrat-leaning, I would say. And he, he kind of turned them because I think they got tired of, uh, you know, hearing things on the TV that just weren't true. I mean, they're not, they're not, a lot of those people don't have cable, and like an Obama phone means a lot to them. But, uh, but frankly, they got tired of, you know, hearing basically fake news from, or, you know, very one-sided news. You know, somebody goes out and kills a Muslim, goes out and kills a bunch of people. And then next thing you know, the attorney general's coming on and going, well, we're, our main concern is that, you know, that somebody's going to say something mean to a Muslim. Well, they're like, well, really? What? That's your main concern? So, uh, that being said, this thing with the electors, um, I, mean, I, I know these people pretty good. I think that's a lot of the people who, who voted them in and, uh, I, the fact that they're not covering the fact that they're actually trying to like uh, to release these people's names, they're you know uh, attacking them, they're uh, basically putting out like one-sided news. There was some Russian intervention uh, in the thing, but it didn't swing the election. There's no no proof of that. But should they manage to do something like that, um, you know, I really hope they don't. Uh, and you know, they they got thrown to the congress and they ended up you know putting in john Kasich or something uh my, my i wouldn't worry is, about it it's not going to happen yeah, I, well, I wouldn't spend too much time that would be like that would be like a coup yeah and it wouldn't go i mean it would go over well, terribly with the american people so i really don't think that's that's going to be a thing that happens so i wouldn't worry about it but uh i do agree with you the fact they're even talking about it and this is even a thing is pretty astonishing john from bucks county best named county in america great to have you sir shields high Team, we will be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Is the Buck Sexton Show. So this is going to be something that we can expect for the foreseeable future, and that is that all things Trump now are to be hated. Uh, that Trump is now sort of the Emmanuel, for the left, is like the Emmanuel Goldstein from 1984, that we all just have the, the two minutes hate, and we're just going to uh, y- yell about how terrible Trump, not just Trump as a president, but every, everything Trump has to be terrible. You'll notice there's this feud 
noted in the New York Post between Graydon Carter, the publisher of Vanity Fair, and uh, Donald Trump over a restaurant, a restaurant review, rather. And when you take a moment, uh, I, I read this review on VanityFair.com, and it's very clear that this is now just everyone has to show how much they hate Trump by showing uh, how, you know, how terrible everything associated with Trump is at, at every opportunity. So there'll be nothing that is branded Trump that is sort of safe from this treatment now. Um, they are going to really try to destroy. It's interesting that Trump values his brand so highly. I mean, who, I mean he says it's worth nine billion dollars. I don't think anyone's going to pay nine billion dollars for Trump's name. But who, the, that's neither here nor there, really, because what they're going to try to do is not just destroy his presidency, but really destroy the Trump name. I think they will be at best. Uh, or, how do I how do I phrase this? I do not think they'll be successful. I mean, they may tarnish it somewhat in the view of the left, but I think Trump will withstand, the Trump name will withstand all the left throws at it. Uh, look what they did to Bush, and he didn't even have any buildings, well, you know, residential towers at least named after him. Uh, so I just wanted to go through this uh, this Vanity Fair PCD for a second because it's, it's pretty fascinating uh, reading. It's if somebody wanted to write the most absolutely absolutely scathing and completely ridiculously over-the-top hateful review of a restaurant that they possibly could, it would be this. The At the top of the piece, is like, Trump Grill could be the worst restaurant in America. That's what it says. The worst restaurant. Now, now, I can tell you, having... Bounced around the country a little bit. Not as much, I'm sure, as some of you, uh, but I've, I've, I've made my way around in some places. And I have eaten some pretty terrible food in this country. I have been in my fair share of places. I mean, I've eaten in LaGuardia Airport. I know. Uh, I have been to some places that have horrific food. I know it gets worse in LaGuardia Airport. but And I will also say, by the way, that food in general in this country is so much better now than it was when I was a kid. Uh, your options, you know, your options everywhere are just, I mean, the food that's available in your average grocery store in America, is, the quality of the food and the, the sort of level, the, the level of the prepared goods. I mean, everything is just totally different from, I mean, go back and watch the movies in the 80s and you sort of see these, you know, when the, when the family sits down to, to eat dinner and you sort of see what they've got, you know, a lot of it is kind of eh. A lot of spaghetti with canned pasta sauce. Not that that's bad, but I'm just saying that was definitely a thing that everybody was eating all the time before I think they realized that pretty nutritionally vacant and uh, especially, you know, if the pasta sauce is really glorified ketchup. And this is what people would eat, right? And food has gotten much better. Um, you know, things like SpaghettiOs and things. I mean, I mean, some of you may love SpaghettiOs, sorry. I ate, I will tell you, I ate a lot of tuna fish growing up because I learned how to sort of make the sort of tuna myself, put a little mayo in there and, you know, whatever. And I would make myself tuna. I ate so much tuna as a kid that I can't, I just can't eat tuna anymore, really. I just stay away from it, um, unless it's seared and like a tuna steaks. But I mean, canned tuna fish, I try to stay away from because I, I ate so much of it growing up. Anyway, uh, but I've been to some pretty terrible. I'm trying to think of the worst restaurant I've ever been to. Of course, Trump Grill is not the worst restaurant in America. Okay, let's start with that. So that you've got someone writing for Vanity Fair, and that is. The title of this piece, You Are What You Eat, Trump Grill Could Be the Worst Restaurant in America. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is the, uh, the virtue signaling here is, 
is astonishing, isn't it? I mean, you're virtue signaling by showing the extent of your hatred for Donald Trump. That is now a virtue. If you really, really, really hate Donald Trump, you're a virtuous person. So much so that you have to hate a restaurant that bears his name and that is probably only partially owned by him. You have to denigrate the food that comes out of that kitchen. You have to make snarky comments about whether he fired the illegals that probably worked in the kitchen because illegal aliens work in a lot of kitchens across the country. Uh, Let me give you some of the sections from this. I'm just, I find this fascinating because this is now going to be the way it is for everything. Um, And by the way, they're also going to try to translate this to Trump supporters as much as possible to make it a, a social ill. I mean, to, to make you a, a social pariah, if you will openly support the Trump administration or even forget about openly support it. Just sort of give it a chance. Just be like, all right, let's see what they do. Let's just see what they do. Even saying that makes you a terrible person now. This is from the Vanity Fair piece that has sparked this feud. Um, and by the way, the, the also, I'm sorry. I know I keep doing diversions here. This is how I think. The way that they're reporting on this is, oh, look at Trump. He's a president and he's still getting involved in these little sort of petty spats. This piece in Vanity Fair is not about a restaurant. It's about how disgusting and horrific Donald Trump is using the restaurant as a sort of uh, as an analogy or as a, as a metaphor, as a as a uh, means of getting at Donald Trump himself. Uh, so it's Trump. It's Trump in a restaurant personified. So this is what this is what this woman, uh, I think Tina Wynn is the name of the author. Yeah, she writes, Donald Trump is a poor person's idea of a rich person. Uh, Fran Leibowitz recently observed in Vanity Fair. They see him, they think, if I were rich, I'd have a fabulous tie like that. Nowhere, perhaps, does this reflection appear more accurate than at Trump Grill, which is occasionally spelled grill with an E on various pieces of signage. On one level, the grill suggests the heights of plutocratic splendor, a steakhouse built into the basement of one's own skyscraper. On another level, Trump Grill falls somewhat short of that lofty goal, The restaurant features a stingy number of French-ish paintings that look as though they were bought from home goods. Wall-sized mirrors serve to make the place look much bigger than it actually is. The bathrooms transport diners to the experience of desperately searching for toilet paper at a Venezuelan grocery store. And like all exclusive bastions of uh, hot cuisine, hot cuisine, pardon me, there is a sandwich board in front of advertising, uh, in front, advertising two great prefix deals i mean this thing this piece is just dripping with snobbery um and and what's so fascinating to me is that there still seems to be a desire in the media to sort of point and gawk at trump as as nouveau riche when trump has been riche now for you know and in the public eye for like 40 years so uh, you know this nouveau isn't you know maybe garish in his taste or whatever but who cares this piece, though, is worth reading because it's just an exercise. It's a literary exercise in how to be as uh, nasty and snarky and destructive as possible and using a restaurant to actually critique a human being. Um, and look, the photos of the food, it does look like it's pretty crappy, but it's the wor- definitely not the worst restaurant in America. I've, I've seen some pretty sketchy places, and this does not qualify. I was, I was trying to think off the top of my head of like what the worst food is that I've had. I definitely remember traveling for some crew races and like driving long distances and stopping with the team and having to eat in places that, but you know, because of fast food, I mean, that doesn't get some fast food's delicious. Fast food doesn't really count to really be the worst restaurant in America. You'd have to be a restaurant 
that was trying to be a real restaurant, that was trying to be good and failed spectacularly in that. Um, I remember, oh, I remember I went to a place called WD50 in New York City, I think, or WD40 or WD50. And I actually was, this is a long time ago. Let me see if I can look this place up. It's, it was a favorite, uh, famous, I'll tell you the story because it's kind of funny. Um, WD50, was that what it was called? I think it's still, oh gosh, it's still open. Whoops. Oh no, permanently closed. Yeah, <laughs> thought so. It's down on the Lower East Side, and this chef, Wiley Dufresne, was trying to be super creative. And uh, that whole restaurant was, the, the menu was like, you read it, you're like, what is this? And I remember they brought me some dish, and it was supposed to be popcorn, but something with it and on it. I feel like it was like popcorn and like diced scrod, or just something that you're just like, this is going to be. And I, I sent it back. I was like, this is actually inedible. This is, I was on a date there, too. I was like, this is inedible. This is disgusting. I can't eat. I, I rarely send back food. Because I just don't like to be that guy. And I never really... I, if I send back wine, it's because it's... Uh, they've brought me actual vinegar. Um, I, I don't pretend to know the difference. Most 90% of the wine I drink costs less than $25 a bottle. Um, so, and I don't drink beer anymore because of celiac disease. I went to this WD-50 place. I was on a date. And I definitely feel like I was trying to... Uh, this is maybe t- eight, nine, year, maybe 10 years ago. Gosh, I think it's 10 years. I think it was 10 years ago. And now there's, you know, trying to sort of... Lower East Side, which is a very hip part of Manhattan. I'm trying to uh, make an impression on this lady. I remember it, she, was, she was very pretty, but not very nice. Um, that's all I can I don't even remember who she was. And we're sitting there at dinner, and I'm eating. This food is terrible. And I also don't ever want to be the guy who sends back food as though that's supposed to be, like, impressive. But, I mean, the food was actually disgusting. And it, was a, it, was, it wasn't a super expensive place. It was pretty expensive. But I'm telling you this because I remember at the end of the meal, we were close to the last per, last people in the restaurant because it was so hard to get a reservation. So this place was trendy, and it was you know I was writing about it. I'm telling you, the food was inedible. It was disgusting. I, I I wish I could remember some of the dishes. One of the things that was like the popcorn, um, it w- was just abso- absolutely the grossest stuff. I'm trying to see if I can look at some of the stuff that's on the menu here for this restaurant and tell you about some of it. Um, but anyway, it was terrible. It was the only time also I've been in a restaurant where it was pretty much cleared out. And at the end, a light fixture. I mean, chandelier makes it sound like the scene from Phantom and the Opera. It wasn't a chandelier, but it was sort of a a big light fixture out of nowhere, fell down and crashed on the table that was right next to the one I was sitting at with this date I was on. And we're like the only people in the restaurant. And it was a big enough light fixture that if it had hit one of us, I mean, definitely going to the hospital. And that was at the end of the meal. And I always remember that. I was like, that's pretty fitting. That pretty much, the food here was super gross. It was expensive. The staff was snooty. And they and I almost got uh, you know knocked out by a light fixture. I always remember that. That was one of the worst restaurant experiences I've ever had. I mean, I've had some other really bad ones. I definitely went on a date with a young lady. She ate tuna steak. She got histamine poisoning, which is a specific thing to tuna, which just gives you the worst kind of like food poisoning, you know, not to be gross, but you know the both ends. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. That was not fun. That was that that date. Uh, we ended up actually dating, but that date did not go well. Uh, f- anyway, but yeah, the Trump restaurant thing is the only review I've ever read of a restaurant that was as scathing, and you can see it on Vanity Fair for yourself. And it's worth reading because you'll see what I mean. It's not about the restaurant; it's about Trump. It's just like this is an opportunity to show how much I hate Trump because now that's that's sort of a new social currency that proves how cool you are. That, pro- that, that proves that you're like one of the good, smart people. And 
Yeah. Um, there was a, a, a restaurant, a review of Guy Fieri's place in Times Square here in New York City, which I've never been to. And that was another like it was the reviewer had decided I'm going to um, I'm going to just open the chest and pull out all the internal organs of this restaurant and and then put them in a blender. I mean, it was just complete annihilation. That's pretty much what this review is on Vanity Fair. But I just I, I kind of wonder if any of you have uh, this would be kind of a fun thing for tomorrow. And I'll try to remember this or John try to remind me. I think it'd be fun to do if you have any. Restaurant. It doesn't just have to be gross. I don't want to just hear about gross food. Like if you have hair in your soup, I mean that happens all. Of it. But if you have any restaurant disaster experience that you want to share on radio tomorrow during Freestyle Friday, I would kind of want to know what it is. I want to see if you can top my the sh- you know the the light fixture that almost knocked me out at the end of a completely overpriced and pretty terrible meal. Be very curious to know if you could outdo that one. I'm sure I've got some other ones too. Um, there, uh, yeah. I'm sure I've got some others that I could share, but that's that's high on the list. I kind of want to go check out the Guy Fieri. I, I forget what the place. John, do you know the place in, in Times Square? Guy Fieri's restaurant, what it's called? I feel it's called like All American something or whatever. But I mean, they, you know, they said that the drinks tasted like battery acid. I mean, it was just like woo. Um, I, I do have I do take a certain pleasure in reading reviews of movies when the reviewer decides. That they're not gonna go. It's not like a, a, a pluses and minuses. It's just chainsaw. Like we're just they're just gonna go after it. Those can be kind of entertaining. That's there you go, guys. American Kitchen and Bar got one of the worst reviews. In the, I think it was the New York Times. Worst reviews of anything I have ever read ever. I mean, it's 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 a review. It's like somebody writing a review of what it would be like to have the bubonic plague. I mean, that was like what the review was for that that place um, in New York Times. So anyway, but I digress. 888-900-3393 if you want to call in and chat before we close out. I'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I just wanted to read to you from the review that I mentioned uh, to close out the show. This is from 2012. As not, as not seen on TV, this is from the New York Times, writing with Guy Fieri. Look, I hate the New York Times, but this was pretty funny. Guy Fieri, this is a quote from the, start, from the top. Guy Fieri, have you eaten at your new restaurant in Times Square? Have you pulled up one of the 500 seats at Guy's American Kitchen and Bar and ordered a meal? Did you eat the food? Did it live up to your expectations? Did panic grip your soul as you stared into the whirling hypno wheel of the menu where adjectives and nouns spin in a crazy vortex? When you saw the burger described as Guy's Pat LaFrieda custom blend all-natural Creekstone farm black Angus beef patty LTOP lettuce tomato onion pickle SMC super melty cheese and a slathering of donkey sauce on garlic buttered brioche, did your mind touch the void for a minute? Did you notice the menu was an unreliable predictor of what actually came to the table? I mean, he just goes on. It's it's like it is somebody just dropped, you know, it is the the written equivalent of dropping the nuke on somebody's restaurant from the New York Times. Anyway, I'm not sure it's fair or not. I'm just saying it was an entertaining read. Uh, team, we're going to have a fantastic Freestyle Friday tomorrow. Action movie quotes and more. Shield tie. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.